0: Last Sunday afternoon, Beth and I drove to the Chicago area to celebrate Mother's Day with Beth's mom and her dad, and it was a joy to see both of them, and two of her sisters were there as well, and two of our brothers-in-law. Well, after visiting for a bit, our brother-in-law, Mark, shared how disappointed and frustrated and even angry he is about what is happening at the Christian college he graduated from. Mark has been financially supporting this school for over 40 years because it had such an impact on his life. You see, he went to this Christian school as a brand new believer, and God used that school to help equip him in his faith, and he has walked with Christ ever since. But with a grieving heart last Sunday afternoon, he shared with us that he's decided to discontinue his giving because the college has caved on biblical sexuality and gender issues. He's made several phone calls, respectfully. He's written letters. He's talked to people in the upper areas of the administration, all to no avail. Well, I was sitting right next to Mark, and I told him, I said, Mark, I respect you because you are a convictional Christian. And this is what he kept saying. He said, Brian, this is a Christian college. This is a Christian college. Or so I thought. I gave him props for his resolution not to compromise. On Tuesday night of this week at our deacon meeting, we discussed how important it is for us as a church to be convictional. And not compromise. And here are some statements that some of the deacons shared. One deacon said this self has now become the interpreter of truth. This person said, there's no standard for right and wrong in our culture anymore. And then one guy said, we will not compromise or capitulate as a church. One of our deacons ended our discussion time with this phrase, we need to respond respectfully to those with different views to win them to Christ. Well, what an honor to serve with deacons and trustees and our pastoral team who have such a commitment to doctrinal clarity with a love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we were finished talking and lamenting, we spent time praying for our church, for our community, for other churches and our entire country. So that was Tuesday night. On Wednesday morning, I opened up my Bible. Many of you are following the Edgewood Bible reading plan. We make this available every month. We kind of re-up it every month. Uh, You can pick that up out in the lobby or get it on our mobile app or website. The reading for Wednesday was from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan. What are they sighing and groaning over? All the abominations that are committed in it. God marks those who sigh and groan over gross abominations. In contrast, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, God pronounces woe upon those who redefine wickedness to make it somehow palatable. Listen, you don't want God pronouncing woe on you, do you? This is what he says Word of God, woe to those who call evil good. And good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Some time ago, I tried to capture our societal situation in one sentence. I've shared this before, but after the last couple of weeks, I've added something at the end. That which is an abomination used to lead to. Lamentation, but is now a celebration because the unthinkable has become unquestionable and those who question are now canceled. Friends, we're continuing in our series called Re, and last weekend we focused on the importance of rededication. We made this point, regardless of your role, Make sure you've rededicated yourself to God's redemptive purposes. I'm reminded of something Dr. George Sweeting said a lot when he was president of Moody Bible Institute. He would say this phrase, the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Perhaps you're here today and you've you've not been living like you know you should. Well, today can be a day of rededication for Our topic today is resolve. Resolve means to decide firmly on a course of action. It's an earnest determination to do something. In the Bible, resolve comes from an inner conviction that a certain way to go is the right way to go. We see this in Acts chapter 11, verse 23. When he, that's Paul, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. So he's visiting believers, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord. I love this next phrase, with steadfast purpose. He's telling these believers, keep going, be steadfast, have a firm resolve in your heart. Now here's some biblical examples. There are many, but here's some men and women who lived out their convictions without compromise. Joseph, who's alone with a woman who wants to sleep with him, said this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And then he got out of there. Joshua, when faced with whether his family would serve the Lord, he's looking around, and people are serving idols. They're bowing to idols. This is what Joshua says. This is what's going to go on in my house. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Oh, for convictional dads today who would say this about their family. Family, this is where we're going We are going to serve the Lord for grandfathers to to import that and impart that upon the next generation. Or how about Esther? She's faced with fear. You see, Esther was Jewish, but she hadn't told anybody. And the king had signed an edict to exterminate all the Jews. Mordecai appeals to her, and she's not sure if she wants to go before the king because, well, that could end badly. And then she says these words. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's a convictional woman. Or how about Ruth, when faced with whether to care for a family member? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Here's our main idea today. Resolve to live convictionally without compromise. And we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1, so I invite you to open your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as our gift to you. Or feel free to use your mobile device. I'm going to begin in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved, what did he resolve? That he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Well, we don't want to be guilty of taking a text out of context, so let's go back to the beginning of the book of Daniel. And I'm going to read a section and then make some explanatory comments. Verse one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, so he's the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jehoiakim was an ungodly king. Well, just one example of that, he came across the scroll of the book of Jeremiah, and instead of hearing it and obeying what God said, he took the scroll and he tore it up, and he threw it into the fire. He was not a good guy. Look at verse, what we read next. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's another name for Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Babylon is the superpower at the time. They came down from the north, came in, surrounded Jerusalem. In our contemporary picture, what our minds think of is what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now. What might surprise you to know, though, in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What? The Lord did that? Well, yeah, God gave them to this evil country because of their evil deeds. God had warned them countless times. Turn from your idols, repent, come back to me. If you don't, judgment is coming. We go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. So Nebuchadnezzar took some of the holy items from the temple and placed them in front of his false idols. Now that was symbolic. He's showing these defeated people that his God was stronger and it signified that they had to submit to him. Look at verses three and four. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So these youths were teenagers, perhaps as young as 14 years old they were ruggedly handsome skilled in wisdom extremely smart committed to study and they had poise to stand before the king proverbs 22:29 do you see a man skillful in his work he will stand before the king Now, these teens were taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. When you see Chaldeans, that's a reference to the inhabitants of Babylon. Here's the plan. The plan was to assimilate these young Jewish guys into the culture, into the pagan culture of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion, verse 5, of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So there, they were to eat and drink the same thing the king did, and their curriculum would take three years to complete at the University of Babylon, after which they'd be brought before the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew, much like Hitler knew, the first thing he needed to do was win the minds and the hearts of young people. And among those, we read verses 6 and 7, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. Azariah, he called Abednego. Some of you want to break out into song at this point. (laughs) Would you know, these four teens are from the royal line of Judah. That's the line kings came from. And each of their Hebrew names reflected the God of Israel. And now they're given new names, which reflected pagan deities. So in a culture where names were of great significance, the aim was to show the captives that their previous identity was now gone. Would you note, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, God is gracious. Mishael, God is without equal. Azariah, the Lord is my helper. And they're all given names now of false gods. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to change who they were. But even though he taught them his curriculum, he couldn't change their character. He removed them from their families, but he could not excise their faith. He changed their homes, but he could not realign their hearts. And even though he altered their names, he could not affect their nature. Well, let's come back to Daniel 1, verse 8. Now we're back to where we started. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Let's look at a few other versions to see how the first part of this verse is rendered. New King James, Daniel purposed in his heart. New American Standard, Daniel made up his mind. The New Living Translation, Daniel was determined to not defile himself. Friends, it's time for us to resolve, to live convictionally without compromise. And this passage gives us three ways to do that. Number one, build your convictions on God's word. Verse eight begins with the conjunction but, which puts in contrast to what we're about to read with what came before. Well, let's unpack the word resolved a bit more. No matter what the Babylonians were trying to do to him, Daniel made a decided resolution from an inner resolve. The word order in Hebrew is significant. Placed Daniel in his heart. Lean in. Daniel didn't live by his feelings here. He lived by the facts of God's word. Let me say it like this. He wasn't led by his heart. He led his heart. That's not easy to do in our culture today. It wasn't easy back then either. And even though, even though others were doing things to him, like changing his name, it was what he chose to put in his heart that gave him courage listen, to stand up and to stand out. What are you putting in your heart today? What captures your heart? What's in there? Friends, we can't just take everything that's in our culture and just put it all in there. You're going to be a mess. You're not going to what you believe. You're going to live by your feelings, and your feelings change, so you change according to your feelings. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Like, guard it, protect it with everything you have. Why? For from it, from your heart, flows the springs of life. You see, we make our decisions, and then our decisions end up making us. Yeah, Daniel decided as a teenager. And that decision affected the next 60 years of his life. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, Daniel gave his whole self to a certain definite purpose, which he deliberately formed. Mark this, Daniel resolved ahead of time not to defile himself. The word defile means to pollute, to stain, to make impure. Interesting. Would you notice that Daniel didn't take a stand on everything? (laughs) He didn't resist when he was deported to Babylon. He didn't push back when they made him attend their schools. He didn't even complain when they changed his name. But when he was offered the king's food and drink, his convictions sounded an alarm. Why was that? Because to eat this food and drink that drink would violate biblical convictions. Daniel's decision came from the depth of his soul, and it was directed by Scripture itself now this is foreign for most of us because we don't think about that we eat what we like we avoid what we don't like that's not what Daniel's doing here he's like I cannot eat that food well let's let's get into what Daniel was thinking here according to Leviticus seven twenty one, the Jews were forbidden to eat unclean animals If anyone touches an unclean thing and eats some flesh from the sacrifice, that person shall be cut off from his people. Well, secondly, this food that the king was offering to Daniel was first offered to Babylonian gods. Some of the wine was ritually poured out as a libation. Isn't it interesting that alcohol is called a libation? Isn't it also interesting that alcohol is called spirits? Anyway, he pours out the alcohol as a libation, as an offering, as a way to please a God, a God with a small G. Daniel's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be part of that. Exodus thirty four fifteen, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice. Thirdly, the Babylonians were known to imbibe with wine, drinking wine with very strong alcohol content. And Daniel knew that getting drunk is a sin. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine, a mocker, strong drink, a browler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. There's a fourth thing that may be going through Daniel's mind, and this may be the most significant. These meals often became pagan parties where the real issue was one of worship. And so to eat with someone was to approve of their lifestyle and worldview. Daniel was not about to sanction idolatry because he had resolved to not break the first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. So his decision was ultimately about his allegiance to God and his conviction to worship God alone. Now, It was no small thing to refuse the king's food. It's the best food in the land. It could be perceived as an insult to the king to decline it. Daniel's in a very precarious situation. I mean, many fellow Israelites had been slaughtered, children, women, men, in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came down. Others who were brought back as exiles were enslaved. Daniel's got a pretty good position here. Daniel could have just gone along to get along. I'm just not going to make waves here. I think of Moses. He's faced with a similar situation. He's raised in an Egyptian palace. But his resolve was based on his biblical conviction. Listen to Hebrews 11.25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. So Moses, in the palace, says, "Uh, I'm actually an Israelite, and I identify with them. They were the enemies of the Egyptians. And he says, I rather choose to be mistreated than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Friends, there's at least two extremes that you and I must avoid. Some Christians today don't stand up for anything. They're like chameleon Christians. Whoever they're around, that's what they do. And, and maybe, maybe the Spirit's convicting you right there. Student, maybe your friends don't even know you're a Christ follower because you, you're not living that way. Or maybe in the workplace. Maybe in your family maybe in your neighborhood, you're just kind of blending into the culture. That's one extreme. The other extreme, some Christians take very strong positions on everything, and they communicate those positions loudly to those around them, sometimes confusing preferences with biblical convictions. Now, I appreciate the insight of James Davison Hunter. He wrote a book called Culture Wars. Here's a paraphrase. What divides us as a culture is not so much our views on abortion and homosexuality and gender. The real issue is our view of truth. See, many today believe truth is relative, meaning, well, meaning there are absolutely no absolutes. They can be absolute about their belief that there are no absolutes, which doesn't make sense. Logically, I thought you said there's no absolutes. Here's the common mantra today. You do you. You just, you do you, I'll do me. Hey, if you're up into that, that's fine. Who am I to say anything? Friends, it's time for the American church. It's time For Edgewood, it's time for you and I individually to resolve to live convictionally without compromise. Now, let me give you some biblical convictions that come to mind. And as I go through this list, you'll be like, well, why isn't this on there? Why isn't that on there? Well, it should be. But for the sake of time, I've just chosen some. So you do some more work on those other ones. But number one, you must start here. The Bible is the absolute authority because it is God's all-sufficient word to us. 2 Timothy 3, Isaiah 40, Psalm 19, 2 Peter 1. God has put everything we need to know in the Bible so, when faced with any issue, any situation, anything that's blowing up your newsfeed, anything that your friends are all up in, and you're, or you're just simply and humbly trying to figure out, what do I believe about this? How do, what do I do? Here's the question What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this topic? I'm afraid some of us say things like this. I, I know what the Bible says. But, listen, if you ever hear yourself add the but at the end of that, an alarm should go off. Well, I know what the Bible says, but I just want to have fun. I, I love her. I love him. I just, I just want to do this. Nobody will know. No, here's what we should say. I know what the Bible says. Therefore, I will or I will not do that. Number two, God created the world out of nothing, all for his glory and for our good. Genesis chapter 1, Isaiah 42, Psalm 121. Friends, we are not the product of evolution. Number three, God created us male and female from the time we are in, were in the womb, and therefore it is wrong to attempt to change our gender. Amen. Number four, marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. Genesis 2, Matthew 19, and many others. Listen, any sex outside of marriage, including the practice of homosexuality, is a sin. And marriage between members of the same sex is wrong. And Christians are not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. God said what marriage is. Number five, life begins at conception. And every baby in the womb is made in the image of God. And the preborn have dignity and they have worth and they have value and they must therefore be protected. Genesis 1, Jeremiah 1, Psalm 139, Proverbs 24, many others. So let me say this. We hear a lot today about human rights and justice. Let me just say this and I'll say it strongly. Without a doubt, abortion is the ultimate justice and human rights issue. As today, you and I are called to stand up for those who can't even speak for themselves. 60 million babies died through abortion since 1973. This summer, our uh, but before I say that, let me, let me just say this. We're doing the Baby Bottle Project, and I just want to add this. Um, you'll hear like, oh, those who believe in, in the, that the preborn matter and those who are standing up for life, they don't care about women, and they don't care about families. They're just all about the baby in the womb. Listen, every pregnancy resource center I know offers post-abortion groups. They offer support for families, classes for dads, free diapers. In fact, there's free diaper giveaway uh, going on at both of the centers in our community. Here, Here as a church, we're celebrating and promoting Vacation Bible School, Super Summer Slam. The theme for that is the sanctity of human life. Now, be- because, because this is such a hot-button issue, I want to give you a resource. And, and the best way I could think how to get that resource to you is we posted a link on our sermon extras Tab. You can get to that on our website under resources or on our free mobile app. You can get to it there. We posted a number of resources for this weekend. It's a podcast called Answering the Top Six Objections to the Pro-Life Argument. It's by Lisa Childers and Scott Klusendorf. And number six, so you've got to begin with the Bible and certainly you got to end <laughs> or make sure this one is there, Jesus is the only way to salvation. John 14, Acts 4, John 8, 1 Timothy 2, we believe the scriptures alone teach that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Biblical convictions, then, are the doctrines that come right from Scripture. And they are true throughout the centuries. But there's also an important step that we need to take individually, and that's develop our personal convictions. A personal conviction is based upon scriptural truth, and it applies to an individual believer's life. I like how Betsy Corning puts it, personal convictions never replace or contradict biblical convictions, but they are a further individualized application of biblical convictions. Now, the list that I put down is certainly not exhaustive, but perhaps it'll get you thinking because it's important to resolve what you believe. Here's some examples. How about boundaries in dating? How about the pursuit of purity? Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Another convictional area would be schooling choices for your children. Or how about this, alcohol use. Or how about music and media choices? Many Christians say don't even think about what they listen to, what they're putting in their head and in their heart, but we should. And then finally, the use of money. Now, as you develop your personal convictions, here's a, a passage to ponder All things, 1 Corinthians 10, are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So when you think about it, it would have been easy for Daniel to eat from the king's table. He's far from home. (laughs) No one back in Jerusalem would ever know. Almost everyone else around him was eating it. He could have eaten it with his fingers crossed, maybe. You didn't do that listen you can always find an excuse when you don't want to do what is right if you don't want to do what's right our minds are, are something we'll come up with an excuse we'll justify it God wants me to be happy God, you know we'll just just do it Friends, resolve to live convictionally without compromise. Number two, behave respectfully toward others. Daniel was determined to not eat the king's diet, so he made a winsome appeal. I'm in the second half of verse eight. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Notice Daniel was tactful in requesting a waiver. The word ask has the idea of seeking or requesting. There's no indication he was rude or angry or pushy. Now, that's hard in our culture today. I came across this meme on Facebook. A secular person says, I want to do X. The Christian says, you're free to do it. The secular person says, but you think X is wrong. Christian, yes. The secular person, because you want to control me. No, you're free to do whatever you wish. But I want to do X. You're free to do it. The secular person, but I want you to say that X is good. The Christian says, I can't say that. And the response, why are you such a hateful, intolerant bigot? (laughs) Friend, there is so much anger in our culture today. Here's the temptation. The temptation for us is to respond in the same way at the same volume at which people are coming at us. And sadly, many Christians are doing that exact thing on social media. One author and seminary professor put this tweet out on Wednesday. Nah, brah, we're done with this no bold clarity, just quiet winsomeness so the God-hating elites like us stuff. We hereby declare that era over, all caps, dead, buried. Welcome to the age of bold witness and no fear. Bring matches. What? What? Bring matches. Now I would think this brother would be aware of first Peter three fifteen, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared. We need to be prepared. Make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Or Colossians chapter four. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Listen, taking a stand doesn't mean we become arrogant, that we become proud, or condescending. Write this down. There are wrong ways to be right. I turn to Spurgeon again. Firmness of purpose should be adorned with gentleness of manner in carrying it out. Friends, Jesus was not always politically correct, but he was always perfectly correct. And you and I must settle whether we're going to follow what the Scripture says or what society says. We will not compromise by caving to culture, nor will we clobber sinners. So let's be like Jesus who was full of grace and truth. Resolve to live convictionally without compromise. Number three, believe that God will make a way. Look at verse nine. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Some translations say now God. It's like when Daniel stood up, God showed up. Note this happened after Daniel resolved what he would not do. Often, we don't experience God's blessing until after we boldly base our convictions on God's word. The word favor means loving kindness. Compassion refers to tender empathy. That's incredible because this member of the cabinet who's part of the upper echelons of Babylonian leadership, the Babylonians were known to be barbaric. His instinct would be to exterminate the Israelites. Makes me think of Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Joseph experienced something similar. Remember, he's with the chief jailer, Genesis 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God promises to honor those who honor him. For Samuel 2:20 Samuel For those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me will be high, will shall be lightly esteemed These young men had made up their minds to live for the Lord, and nothing was going to turn them away from their convictions. In chapter 3, they refused to bow down to the golden image, and before being thrown into the fiery furnace, they said these words, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if God chooses not to, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is now more than 80 years old, and he risked death in the lion's den rather than compromise his prayer life. The book of Daniel, fascinating reading. It's filled with miracles and drama, but the crucial event in Daniel's life was not the miraculous. It was the simple decision not to cross the line and eat the king's food. And sometimes the reward comes quickly. Often it takes much longer. And in many cases, our reward doesn't come until we are in heaven. Resolve to live convictionally without compromise. Some time ago, I read a very convicting post. Here's the title, How to Ruin Your Life in Your 20s. And I don't have time to flesh it out, so I'm just going to hit some highlights. You can get this on Sermon Extras as well. Here's, if you want to ruin your life, do whatever you want. Live outside your means. Feed an addiction. Run with fools. Believe this life is all about you. Live for immediate gratification and avoid accountability. Let's summarize. Build your convictions on God's word. Number two, believe or behave respectfully toward others. And finally, believe God will make a way. Your resolve today will shape who you become tomorrow. I close with three action steps. Cultivate your convictions ahead of time. Number two, expect incessant opposition. It's only going to get worse from our ungodly world. Our culture will continually try to reprogram us in different ways of believing and behaving. 2 Timothy 3, while evil people and imposters will go from, listen, from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And number three, draw a line in your soul. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, draw a line in the sand and I get that. The idea is to determine a point you will not cross, a limit that you will, you will do or you will not do something. Now, ironically, I was reflecting on that. I saw a picture of a line in a sand. That's not a very good metaphor, is it? What happens when the waves come? That line's gone. What happens when the wind comes? That line gets blown away. I'm going to suggest it's time right now for you and I to draw a line in our souls deeply, convictionally. Settle it today. In California, the mighty sequoia tree can grow taller than a football field, and many are older than the Bible. These trees are suddenly and without warning toppling to the forest floor. And what's causing the death of these majestic giants? Is it fire? Is it lightning? Is it wind? No. A post-mortem examination revealed a startling cause. Tiny beetles, no bigger than the head of a pin, had crawled under the bark and literally eaten the fibers away from the inside. And so although they looked healthy on the outside, on the inside, they're virtually hollow. And one day, they finally collapse. Since 2014, 28 sequoias have been taken down by these tiny beetles. Listen, that same thing happens to Christians. Happens to Christian leaders, pastors, ministry leaders, and Christians in churches who once walked with Jesus, and things, because of compromise, they've fallen Listen, every time we compromise, something bad happens in our souls. And eventually, the little decisions add up, and we become hollow on the inside, even though we might look okay on the outside. Show me a person who has fallen, and I'll show you a person who started making compromises a long time ago. Don't let that happen to you. If it has, there's hope. There's hope in Jesus. It's time to repent, rededicate, and resolve to live for God right now. Listen, you can thrive in Babylon by living for God in a godless culture. Resolve to live convictionally without compromise. 150 years ago, Philip Bliss wrote a hymn called Dare to Be a Daniel. I close just with the chorus, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Would you stand? God, we're standing uh, because we're getting ready to be dismissed, but we're standing before you. Lord, we've heard a charge from your word today. Lord, help us, by your Spirit, take your words, Holy Spirit, and apply them to our lives today. Not that we would be hearers only, but doers, but not just doing to try to perform. No, that our doing would come out of a heart change. So, Lord, grow your convictions in our souls. And then, Lord, use us. Help us to stand up and to stand out, to be strong in our present cultural climate, always taking the most out of every opportunity that we could point people to the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Use us, Lord, for your glory, for your purposes, and we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, "Amen." amen, amen, you're dismissed.